on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. They were all so deeply influenced by Ficino's Platonism and by directly hearing the hymns, which were used for fun, for healing, for, for healing bad moods, for healing sickness, or just for tuning up the soul and tuning up society in a sense to the divine, to the will of the gods. And, and he said, Ficino, that there is no magic more powerful. And he also said that he learned from these hymns that love is everywhere and that love is the key to magic. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I welcome back author Ronnie Pontiac to discuss his latest book, co-written with his wife Tamara Lucid, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic. Ronnie discusses the history and myth of Orpheus in the Orphic tradition, Orpheus's countercultural figure, the influence the Orphic Hymns have had on literature, art, poetry, and Western esotericism, and so much more. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Tamara Lucid, a documentary film producer, including the Emmy-nominated End of the Line, The Women of Standing Rock, is author of Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, My Seven Years in a Cult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall. She and Ronnie are founding members of the experimental rock band Lucid Nation. Ronnie Pontiac worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He's author of American Metaphysical Religion. He wrote the biographical introduction to Letters to the Sage. He's written for several esoteric journals and has produced award-winning documentaries. Ronnie joins me today to discuss his and Tamara's latest book, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. Ronnie, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio. I'm so happy to be here again. Well, I'm very happy to speak with you because I have a deep interest and abiding interest in mystery traditions of the ancient world. And I was very excited when I learned that you and Tamara were coming out with a translation of the Orphic Hymns. So I've been looking forward to it. And I was exceptionally excited when I received my copy in the mail. Thank you. Of course. I'm so glad. Yeah. So I thought that maybe the best place to begin would be for anyone who may not be familiar uh, with the Orphic hymns. And I was wondering if maybe you could uh, discuss what are they? Okay. It's a complicated question, really. Much more complicated yes. <laughs> than it seems. Yes. And we're going to say right now that everything we're going to be talking about here is under debate in academia. So I'm going to try to tread the middle path and giving everyone an idea of what it may have been. But there are people who argue that it was never anything more than literature mm -hmm. and that maybe some priests, itinerant priests took advantage of it and created a bunch of books at a time when books became very popular that claimed to be by Orpheus. And then they would go find uh, the homes of recently deceased rich people and convince their relatives that they needed to take care of their their deceased souls 
and and their own souls. And so there would be a ritual for a certain price or some books could be bought, or you might even be able to get a charm that you could put in the grave. And this would make sure that that your relative would not wind up in the cold mud of Tartarus as a as a sort of wispy spirit with no voice that that just floats about that they would they would remember that they are divine and they would wake up and be able to have the the honor of being at the feast of the gods because after all they are children of the gods so now let's talk a little bit about the first question which is who was orpheus yes yeah so orpheus there's two myths really the two main myths about him the first is the orpheus that is with jason on the argo and this is the, the quest for the golden fleece. And Orpheus's song is so strong that he can silence the sirens. Orpheus is someone who, when the men get despondent or irritated and angry because they've been at sea too long, he can sing about the creation of the world and restore harmony, uh, not only on the ship, but in all of nature around them. And when he goes to new countries, with the Argo, he finds out about the gods and he leaves a mystery religion wherever he goes that are, is made of songs that are to these gods that he's gathered up. And the hymns of Orpheus were said to be these hymns that were written for all these gods. That's why there are several gods that belong in Asia Minor, not really in, in the traditional Greek pantheon. And so Orpheus, that Orpheus was a a mystery school founder and an expert at, at telling what the gods were saying. For example, there was an earthquake on one island where the Argo stopped and Orpheus said, well, those are the footsteps of Apollo. He wants a mystery school established here. And he did so. The other Orpheus is the Orpheus of the famous backward glance. And this was the Orpheus who was on his wedding day he became a widower because his wife was attacked by either a satyr or a shepherd whose name ironically means in Greek, the most excellent and was really a God of shepherds. It was a very positive God, but in this story, sometimes that name is used. And, and so this person or the satyr saw how beautiful Eurydice Orpheus's wife was and so he chased her, even though the wedding was that day, and tried to force himself on her. As she fled, she was bitten by a nest of vipers, and Orpheus found her lifeless, and he began to lament. And his musical lament was so moving that all of nature wept and, and kind of stopped, and time stopped, and the gods were weeping. And finally, the gods realized they had to do something about this. So they said, Orpheus, go to the underworld and sing to Hades and maybe you can get her back because life has to continue. And so he does and he gets into Hades and it's said that as he walked down there, the souls of the dead flocked around him and that poor Sisyphus who has to roll that rock up the hill stopped and, and sat on the rock to listen. And, and everyone was spellbound by this music. He convinces at least Persephone, there's, there's various versions. In some, he convinces Hades with his music. In, in most, especially any Roman version, Hades is skeptical. And, and it's really Persephone who has to say, you know, you forced yourself on me 
husband. <laughs> and even though now I'm the queen of the dead, I, you better, you know, I want her to, to be free to be with him. Get it? And Hades is like, okay. But I only have one thing that has to be met, one condition. And that is that Orpheus must trust me. And he cannot look back until she reaches the sunlight. If he does, then the deal's off and she's back here with us. Plato speculated that Hades never intended to actually send her. And he sent a phantom in her place to shame Orpheus for making such a big deal out of something that, that all human beings have to experience in one way or another. And so the story is that he, he walked out into the sunlight and he kept walking. He'd heard her footsteps and he, he tried, he, he waited and he waited and kept walking and thinking that, that any second now she would be out there. She couldn't be that far behind him. And, and he finally can't stand it and he turns. And of course, she's still just within the shadow. If he had just waited a, a moment longer, she would have been out. He sees her and then she fades and is gone. And he goes up to a hilltop and every morning at dawn, he sings to Apollo, to the sun, to the intelligent spirit of the sun, the, the, the creator within the sun. And, and Apollo is moved to teach him the mysteries of the gods. He reforms the religion of Dionysus, which was a bloody, ecstatic, kind of crazy affair. And he makes it impossible for someone following his version of the religion to sacrifice an animal, for example, because to sacrifice an animal is to potentially sacrifice someone that was your relative, a beloved relative in a former life, because all of us are reborn over and over again in the world of illusion until we wake up to our divine essence. Hence, we have the Orphic formula I'm a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. So we are partially creatures of this world and, and made up of the, the ashes of the Titans. And so we're destructive and hateful and jealous and deceitful and, and all because of this, this material world that we're struggling to exist in. To, and then we are also made up of the, the ashes of Dionysus, the tears of Dionysus. And of Zagreus, a baby Dionysus who was sacrificed and eaten by the Titans. And, and so when we awaken to that and we, we reawaken to the fact that we are children of starry heaven and we say the right things in the afterlife, we can free ourselves from this wheel of deep, wearying grief that is constant reincarnation into plants, animals, people, and, and such. So that Orpheus is said to have been torn apart by the main ads because they liked the Dionysus religion the way it was. They didn't really want Dionysus to the whole religion to be changed in any way. And they liked the animal sacrifice aspect and many other things about it. And so the story goes that he was torn limb from limb by them and that his limbs, including his head, were thrown into a river. And in the river, the, the head sang and the music made all nature weep as the head floated down the river and then into the sea. And then it eventually landed on the island of Lesbos. And, and perhaps this is a reference to the fact that that's where the, the music was completely reinvented there by Terpander. And, and, and then, of course, 
lyric poetry was pretty much invented by Sappho there. And, and Apollo is said to have taken up the head of Orpheus and built a small oracular shrine around it. And the nightingales were said to sing more sweetly around that shrine than anywhere else in Greece. So that those are the myths of Orpheus. Was there an Orpheus? Back in the day, they believed that there was. Some people said he was a student of Hermes. Eventually, they said he was the student of Moses. Hmm. And everyone agreed he'd gone to Egypt to get his wisdom and then brought it back. But there were, even in ancient times, there were these kind of wry remarks that we still have that survive that, that basically tell us that it very likely the whole Orpheus literature was invented by Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans. And it was, it was, their intent was to reform the, the, the religion, and they succeeded. And so they created this incredible counterculture, essentially, around which the myth of Orpheus was the, center, the centerpiece of which. And so the, the Pythagorean, uh, there's so many similarities between the beliefs of the Pythagoreans, including reincarnation, and what we find in these Orphic remnants. So the, there's a still argument about this, and there are potentially other sources for this, these ideas. Scholars argue that it could be from India, for example, that, that many of these ideas are, are, are similar to Hindu spiritual practices and beliefs. And there are others who, who believe that it, it has some kind of a Hittite origin. And certainly there are some serious similarities in the afterlife conception and, and then Egypt, of course, there's huge amounts of studies around the similarity between the funerary texts and these hymns. And that, too, is, is there are impressive similarities. Hmm. Now, we don't really believe that there was an Orpheus. Most scholars think that this was a, a hereditary name or a, or a mythic name and that many figures were wrapped up into it. And one scholar in his book, Black Athena, his series of books, which are a brilliant argument that, that Greece got its civilization from Egypt, he he points out that the um what is his name? Martin Burnell, I believe. I, I do highly recommend his books, but he points out that it could be the word Orpeus, roughly pronounced mm. by me, which is an Egyptian word for hereditary prince. Mm. O-R-P-A-I-S is the phonetic and phonetic spelling. <laughs> so it, it could be that, that that this is some kind of, a, of an Egyptian interpretation made into a Greek religion by Pythagorean. And, uh, and in, there was even somebody signing things as Orpheus of Croton. And, and we have an ancient writer who says, well, that's got to be Pythagoras because he lived in Croton. Hmm. And he would be the Orpheus of Croton. He was the, the mystical mysteries teacher of that time and place. So that, that's Orpheus. And that's the Orphic hymns then are, are something that was written to, I like to describe it as tuning the soul to the divine. And they address almost every aspect of life through the deities and also through natural forces and through experiences such as death. And in all these experiences, they, they appreciate the beauties that correspond to, to that area of life and to that deity's province. And they also have a kind of 
of way of finding the divine wisdom in these different areas of life and reminding us of it. So I like to use the example of the hymn to death because it's a stark hymn that closes out the hymns and kind of lets you know, this is it, you know, closing time. And it doesn't pull punches. It doesn't ask death for mercy or, or any kind of a feeling that you're going to gain favoritism by addressing death in this way and honoring it. But what it does do is it reminds us that death teaches us how to love life to begin with, because we know that we have a limited time with all that we cherish. And, and also it reminds us that death is the one and it asks death to lead us away from the wheel of, of deep grief and to the fields uh, we're the of light of enlightenment and and where we are free and we remember and, and we never have to come back into illusion again and so the hymns are, are they have a reputation for being the most powerful kind of magic hmm. marsilio facino who's often called the father of the renaissance if if he was the father of the renaissance it's an orphic hymn that started the renaissance because he did a hymn to the cosmos at a key moment in his life. He was 29 years old. He knew he wanted to dedicate his life to translating Plato, Aristotle, and all these other wonders that had been rescued, that had been lost to Europe for generations and were not available. And, and he had the knowledge of language to translate it into a language that people could read. And so knowing that he didn't have the resources to do it, he did this hymn to the cosmos hmm. and almost immediately received a letter from Cosmo de Medici telling him that, that Cosmo had set aside a home, a house for him to live in with a village that would support him. And, and that Cosmo was waiting for him there to hear the, the, the first of the translations and that he should bring his lyre with him, which meant sing the Orphic hymns because that's what he was famous for using his lyre for. And so he went there and the result of it ultimately was, was the creation of the Platonic Academy of Florence. But these performances of the Orphic Hymns by Ficino had a tremendous impact. It, it's only, only one of the stories is the Poliziano, a musical composer, he leaves us in his journals a record of how he would go and he would, with his friends, they would all sit and they would listen to him perform these hymns and, and they would be so moved and fired up and, and inspired. And Poliziano would go home and he, he said he wrote all night composing and, and he eventually wrote an opera about Orpheus. And the person who did the set design was Leonardo da Vinci. Hmm. And all these people, Pico della Mirandola and, and many, many others were so Lorenzo de Medici. They were all so deeply influenced by Ficino's Platonism and by directly hearing the hymns, which were used for fun, for healing, for, for healing bad moods, for healing sickness, or just for tuning up the soul and tuning up society in a sense to the divine, to the will of the gods. And, and he said, Ficino, that there is no magic more powerful. And he also said that he learned from these hymns that love is everywhere and that love is the key to magic. Hmm. And then Agrippa comes along, who's born 
just 30 years after Ficino dies. And, and he says in his famous and, and incredibly plagiarized um, three books of occult philosophy that, that these hymns, you know, that you can make your own hymns. Like if you study up on the gods and you want to address a god and have this theurgic experience and be lifted to, to the divine harmony, then you can do that just by, by learning and doing this yourself and writing a sincere hymn and paying attention to all that. But if you want a really good example of how to do it, check out the hymns of Orpheus. And he says, if you do it the right way and you pay attention to all the details, there's nothing more powerful. Wow. So these are big you know, figures in the history of Western esotericism who, right. who are presenting the hymns as the most powerful and so what does that mean? Does it mean that when you use them, you can manifest whatever you want? Were they meant for that purpose? I don't, I can't really answer that because I've never used them for that purpose. And I, I do hope that people who use them, even if they use them for a, a purpose that I wouldn't use them for, if, you know, if they do, would get back to me and let me know, <laughs> especially if they work. And but I do know that it seems to me that what they're about is not so much about what we want, but fulfilling divine will, hmm. like tuning ourselves to what the, the divine wants. So if, if we want the same thing the divine wants, then, then, you know, yes, then we get the divine support. But if we don't, then we have to tune ourselves to find, find that vision so that we can accomplish our utmost potential and hopefully remember what we are that, that that we are ourselves inwardly divine yeah 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 i've used the orphic hymns a little bit in ritual specifically i've done the hymns to hermes and to zeus and i think there are a couple to zeus if i remember correctly mm -hmm. but i also have well i don't have it but there is a rendering of the orphic hymn to zeus that t susie chang who's a Tarot scholar of sorts, and she is fluent in Greek. And mm -hmm. you can find this on YouTube where she's got some of them in the Greek. And I love nice. playing that Greek translate, you know, the original Greek of the hymn to Zeus, because it, it you can almost feel the divinity coming into the room, you know, and I'm always surprised that I don't start hearing thunder in the background. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, and you described uh, some of your experiences using some of the hymns at the very beginning of the book, and it seems like there were some kinds of synchronicities that, that were involved with that. Yes, it was a very interesting experience, to say the least. We we were we were really doing the ritual out of. Well, I should go back and say that the last project I worked on with Manly Hall when I worked for him was his reprint of the Thomas Taylor translation, the second edition of it, of the hymns of Orpheus, or as he called it, the mystical hymns of Orpheus. Mm. And, and so I, I found out these things about them. I was moved by them. And I, I wanted to render them into simpler language. And I also felt, felt drawn to the idea of adding details of cult mm. so that, because I thought the priests who performed them knew all this, but we don't. Right. So, so we need to give the flavor of, of the god or goddess that we're talking about, what were the historical correspondences associated with them, so that we can get a real sense of them. And, 
and then it was also a way of entering our new lives as musicians hmm. and and so we lived in this apartment in hollywood that looked out on other apartment buildings and there was you know like a tree and a, and a little bit of sky and we were up on the third floor and we just kind of whisper sang them hmm. as as they were written trying to hit the right feast days wherever possible and and we didn't really intend them so much as a great magical ritual although we did take on many of the prohibitions uh, orphic prohibitions which are really like the pythagorean prohibition so no beans no meat no alcohol no no weed even that wasn't on the list <laughs> and and we just tried to to be pure and to approach it with respect for apollo and so we were shocked because there were these serendipitous occurrences and quite a few of them the most dramatic was probably for the hymn to athena and that was in broad daylight in a place where you just really don't see and especially then la's become a little bit more more wildlife friendly in, in the last few years but at that time it wasn't at all and there were no owls around but we did the hymn to Athena and a great horned owl landed at the nearest telephone pole right on top of it wow. and sat there while we did the hymn. And then when we finished, dropped off the pole, swooped right at our window and then straight up and over the building. Wow. And yeah, so we were obviously, we just kind of looked at each other. What just happened? And we just thought, you know, we were, we were hip to the idea that serendipity is means you're on the right path and kind right. of, we'd seen some, some of the writings around those ideas and, and we took it in stride, you know, although we were, we were really delighted by the experience, obviously and moved. And then it kept happening. So like when we did the Aphrodite, there was a couple winds up walking right underneath us holding hands and they stopped right under our window and kissed. And again, no way they could have heard us. We're up there whispering three stories high. And there was a Zeus one, actually, about thundering Zeus. And, and we had predictions of sunny weather during a sunny season. And then that day, there was a, a shower when the hymn was going on and a little bit after. And, and they talked in the news about the surprise weather. And hmm. well. So we didn't think we were doing it, mm. right? We, we didn't think that, wow, these hymns are making these things happen in nature. We felt that we were drawn into this magical kind of, as Tamara puts it, kind of a magical dance with nature. It was like all the fairy magic of the world yeah. came roaring out and, and suddenly life had turned into something that wasn't the same world that we had been inhabiting and when these kind of things could we were drawn in in a sense to to nature doing something and you know and letting us see it happen and 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 we don't know people ask me well do you think that that was you know what do you think that was because depending on one's perspective it could be all kinds of things right it could be I mean, if you're, if you're a devout and very non-pagan friendly Christian, that, that can be nothing else but demons masquerading as pagan gods trying to snare us. And now we've written this horrible book to <laughs> snare more people. I've had occultists arguing that, that these gods are egregores, they're, that they're mm. collective thought forms, that 
that uh, are manipulative and are only really interested in, in their own power and survival. And, and so they did little magic tricks to, to get Tamara and I entranced. And now, once again, they've got this book out of us that's got to go out there and feed the egregore. And, and it could be that they are indeed those gods. And I've had some you know, wonderful occultists say, but do you really want those gods more active in this world? I mean, you know, that, that usually comes up when Sekhmet is discussed. Hmm. And, and so then that's, if you don't know who Sekhmet is, this was an ancient Egyptian lion-headed lioness goddess whose name basically meant invincible power. And, and she, her idea of a good time was trying to slaughter all of humanity for being unjust. So, and she's, her worship is burgeoning and there's some who think, well, maybe that's not such a good goddess to have (laughs) going on. I personally find her wonderful. She also is a goddess of libraries and all kinds of, of really lovely things, including healing and medicine. So, these these this question of you know archetypes robert anton wilson's reality tunnels all those are just words Hmm. and i think we get lost in the word and what we visualize with the word and we think that this is the right way to see it or Hmm. the closest way to see it and tamara and i don't really believe that we we think that all those words are distorting windows on something Hmm. and and whatever that something is, is a wonderful mystery. And you have to judge it by, by the results. And historically, and in my own life, and amongst those I've known who have, have been interested in these matters in Orpheus and in the Orphic hymns, I've seen nothing but positive impact and, yeah. and har- what you would might call harmonization of life. Mm. And, and also, I have to add, all through Western history, we're, this stuff is at the heart of music and, and, and sculpture and philosophy and painting and, and, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you, everywhere you go, especially where there's countercultures, you find it. So the troubadours, they, they had Sir Orfeo, who was an example to them of how to be a good troubadour. And then later, when, when there was a more warlike period, he was this brave knight called Sir Orpheus, who had been trained by Moses and knew all the mysteries of the gods. And, and it's fascinating that, that the Catholic Church kind of accepted Orpheus. And there were Catholic fathers who, who were deep scholars of these matters and who, who even said, this is good stuff. You know, you know we, we can take what's good from it. And there's even a, we have a fragment from a, a unknown Franciscan monk who left the message, Orpheus is Jesus. Jesus is Orpheus. Wow. And, and so this influence is even there amongst the Rosicrucians on the Protestant side of Christianity, where we see Orpheus popping up in the court of Frederick Palatin just before the disaster that led to the 30 years war when he tried to become kind of a holy roman philosopher king instead of emperor and and it didn't work at all but the, there was like this it's interesting too that at that during that rosicrucian period where orpheus pops up all over the place and there's orphic orphic elements in the rosicrucian manifestos no less mm. uh that shows some kind of influence and what you find is 
that that too was a time when books were suddenly exploded and and orpheus certainly was a religion of books it was something that that happened when books became more available to people and there was such a, a suddenly plethora of books signed by Orpheus as a result about the afterlife and about holy rituals and about I mean, just anything you can think of. It was like the new age, but it was all Orpheus. And, and then you get a period where the Rosicrucians produced and, and their reactions to them, good and bad, produced this wave of books at a time when books reach a high level of popularity. So that's interesting. That they, yeah. this pops up at the same time. And then as we've discussed, when the Renaissance commences, Orpheus and these hymns are right at the heart of it. Wow. And it's not surprising to find that we've had many occultists with a great interest in the Orphic hymns. And so Emma Hardinge Britton talks about when she was a young woman, actually a girl, and she was taken advantage of by these English occultists who were nobles and how they call themselves the Orphic Circle. And they used her as a medium, but one of them treated her as a mistress and it was a whole kind of shoddy affair. But the, the influence obviously of Orpheus was there again through the translations of Thomas Taylor, Shelley was influenced by Orpheus. William Blake was influenced by Orpheus. Emerson was influenced by Orpheus and it just keeps popping up in this way. Yeah. That really stunned Tamara and I, we, we really uh, we're surprised to see how constant an influence it has been in all of these different fields. Yeah. It seems to make artists bloom. You know, we right. call we call it a grow light at one point because wow. of that. Yeah, yeah. You referred to him as the first first rock star in history, I think. Yes, point. I think it, it's that's a funny thing. That was Tamara's observation. She said, "You know, the Argo's a tour bus. A bunch yeah. of guys who are, who are going out there to get the Golden Fleece." He's he's doing these these he's doing concerts. He goes everywhere and he establishes these these mystery schools with these songs. He's a vegetarian. He's got he had the long hair and and was playing the stringed instrument and lamenting lost love, and and but everybody said that his lyrics were incredibly deep and had the mysteries of the universe if you just understood them. And he was a counterculture figure who was against going to war. And was all about preparing for the, the next world and was all about dreams and all this otherworldly stuff. And finally, he, he was someone who represented everything you didn't want your kid to be to the ancient Greeks, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. even Aristophanes wrote hilarious stuff and Euripides wrote tragedies about just how much you didn't want your kids messing around with, with these these particular <laughs> mysteries. Wow. Wow. Well, let's um, kind of step back. You, you've brought a lot to the table mm -hmm. and I want to dig in sure. a little bit. So I appreciate the fact that you began by saying that there's really very little, if any, agreement in scholarship regarding uh, Orpheus and the Orphic traditions. And I'm curious the my understanding is that you made the connection with Pythagoras and I forget Pythagoras his dating I want to say it's probably around 600 or sixth so. century yeah. yeah sixth century BCE 
and there seemed to be a lot of these sort of mystery traditions at that time. I'm the mm-hmm. most famous is the Eleusinian probably. And then we have the Dionysian and whatnot. And I, one, I just wanted to be clear to the listeners what a mystery school or mystery tradition is. And what is the evidence that we have that there was in fact a Orphic kind of mystery tradition? This is this is fascinating. So let's first talk about mystery traditions and and what the experiences may have been like. The for a while people thought that the Orphic hymns were actually at the heart of the Eleusinian mysteries, but that seems highly unlikely. We know that there was some sort of an object at the center of it, and there have been various arguments about what it meant. Something associated probably with fertility, the fertility of crops and the fertility of of human beings and families. The experience was something that you you could have more than once, but the first time you had it was when you became initiated. Most of the scholars believe that it may have involved some form of an entheogen, some form of an intoxicant that would bring about the right kind of of susceptibility and and visions, and that there were theatrical appliances that were also connected, essentially that it's the birth of theater. So they would make things happen. There'd be lights and smoke and first time people saw colored lights and such, and there would be all kinds of, of things being intoned or sung and and there would be visuals to, to, to experience and shocking sounds. And, and all of this was intended to wake you up to, to who you really are and to your, your, your mortality. So one of the things that, that, well, let's, let's save that for the Orphic side of this. So we're not sure about any of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not sure what the entheogen might've been. We're not sure what they were doing in there, but we know that we have many, many great Greeks and, and just witness accounts of people saying that these mysteries changed my life. They really woke me up and some people would go back And other people simply were initiated into them and never went back. And their lives didn't change, but they came into their lives somehow awakened. That's how they returned renewed. Now, the Orphic hymns, this is where it gets really interesting. Because we had scholars like like Macherio or Machario, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And we had this school of thought that, that the Orphic religion was almost like Protestantism. It was a reaction against the Olympian religious establishment. It, was, it believed in original sin with the story of the Titans. It believed that the soul was divine, just as Christianity was teaching. And so there was this sense that this was, they even argued at one point, Camporetti was arguing that there was four centuries of of Orphic religion that was uh, dominant in the Mediterranean, predated and helped to inspire uh, Christianity. And then we even have a a German scholar, I think his name was Eisler, who argued that there was a a cross at the center of the Orphic mysteries, but it was actually uh, a wheel that you would spin on and that you would be tied to this thing and then you would be spun on the wheel and then when you were released and you would try to walk away, you would fall because you were so dizzy. And the priest would tell you, this is how, this is what it feels like to, to fall endlessly through space and time that, or whatever word they used for that. 
as you ignorantly live lives over and over again, not knowing who or what you really are. Today, most scholars think that there were no such uh, formal mysteries associated with Orpheus. That in fact, it was these itinerant priests doing small home rituals, and that it was also uh, very probably just literature mm. meant to create the impression of an existing religion. However, what do we do then with Plutarch, who is a wonderful historian and who reports to us that his life and his wife's life, they were completely transformed by their experience of the Orphic mysteries. And he describes things that happened in them. He says that they ran about in a dark cavern, not knowing if there was any escape. And the density of the dark became so overwhelming that he believed that he, was, he would never escape and he was going to die there, that it had been some kind of a mistake or a trick had been played on him. And then at the time of most hopelessness, suddenly there was a, a passage to the sunlight and he went through the tunnel into the light. And there on the other side was this beautiful field and the sun was shining and birds were singing and they were singing the hymns of Orpheus and, and, and he felt completely reborn and he understood that he had been living in that cavern his whole life of the body and that this is what it was like to awaken to your true spiritual self. All the color returns to the world and you suddenly feel that everything's okay and everything's going to be okay forevermore. And he said that even during the worst times of, of his life, like when he and his wife lost their son, that the hymns of Orpheus and, the, and that these Orphic mysteries gave them solace. So something he experienced there did that. And then we have other reports that one of the things that was done at these mysteries was thronosis, which is sitting on a stool, basically wearing a death shroud over your head. And if some say, Jane Harrison, for example, that you walked through a cavern that was painted with all the horrors of human life. So disease and war and, and, and old age and, and neglect and accidents and just anything you can imagine, which you couldn't see back then unless they happened in the village. And now here they all were gathered around you, all the misfortune of life that was possible. You'd be horrified and then you'd have to sit down with this death shroud on top of you. And think about it. Think about wow. death and mortality. And that was just the first step of it. Hmm. And, and then we have the question of, of what, you know, what does it mean if these were Orphic mysteries? Like maybe there was an Orphic mystery school in Plutarch's time and place that, that was able to produce that kind of experience that he writes about. But does that mean that there were other Orphic mystery schools, or was it kind of a small thing? And where do the hymns fit into that? Because the hymns seem to be a rather late concoction. And many people think that in the early days, when they thought that Hermes had taught Orpheus, they, they thought that these hymns were literally written by Orpheus, that he had written for his son, Musaeus. And, and then scholarship kind of caught up to, to actually studying the language and the words and, and seeing what, what it looked like to them. And we also noticed that the first mention we could find anywhere of Orpheus, even though it's famous Orpheus, is in the sixth century by somebody associated with the Pythagorean community who might've been creating a myth, 
So mm. he called him famous Orpheus or Orpheus perhaps was already famous because of the Argo story, but we're not sure. So then the hymns themselves seem to have been, some people argue that they were created in Asia Minor because they include these gods from Asia Minor. Some people believe that they were, they were created in the Athens of the tyrants and that Onomacritus, who was a reader of oracles and, and some have suggested was the scholar who put the books of Homer together, actually wrote down the oral tradition that he did the same for the hymns of Orpheus. And, if, and we do know that Onomacritus was prosecuted for messing around with the hymns at one time in Athens by adding things to them or changing them. So this, this indicates that he certainly has some place in this story. He disappears into the court of Xerxes along with the, the tyrant who took him there, reading the omens that led to the invasion of Greece and, and probably was never, well, was never seen or heard of in history after that, after the battle of Thermopylae, which he was there to witness. Kind of a weird fate for this fellow who probably gave may have given us Homer and the Orphic hymns. Wow. And then, of course, there is a very a more recent theory, but boy, it makes a lot of sense that they were written down during the era of the four Julias in Rome, probably during the time that Julia Domna, Black Julia, was empress and that uh, the emperor was Severus. And this is a unique time in Roman history. We have a half African emperor and a syrian empress who was a priestess of baal hmm. and her influence on culture was incredible he was a soldier and he, he was a very successful soldier but she created this 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 incredible salon of it included galen who revolutionized medicine in those days and was the authority for a thousand years it included the fellow who wrote the Metamorphosis or the Golden Ass, Apuleius, the first novel, but also about the mysteries of Isis. And it included the author of the life of Apollonius of Tyana, Philostratus. And it included legal minds of great brilliance. And one of them apparently was Julia Domna herself, who twice led a group that revolutionized Roman jurisprudence and created the foundation for what is still the law today in Europe and its former colonies. And so this, there was a huge flower and there was a big fascination with ancient mystery cults. They were really supported. And, and so the, the, actually the mysteries of Dionysus in particular were strongly supported by Julia Domna at that time. And so what, what was the dating of this? This would be third century. Okay. So what, what, where they place in Roman history is we know that, that sort of the golden age, such as it was, and it wasn't much of one with more Marcus Aurelius kind of trying to right. keep it all together. And then the plague hits and, and there, the, the barbarians are getting too good at fighting and, and it's the, the glory days are ending. And, mm -hmm. And then his son, Commodus, of course, made Caligula look less crazy. And, 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 and then you get this series of emperors, some of them only lasting months, as different legions declare different emperors. The Praetorian Guard even winds up selling the imperial throne to the highest bidder. Mm. 
And Severus hears about this and he's horrified. Eventually he is declared emperor by his troops. And, and he defends that, that claim against others who have been declared emperor by their troops. And this is, of course, bleeding the wealth and, and the military might of Rome terribly. And he becomes emperor and holds the throne. He creates a dynasty that lasts for about four, let's call it maybe five emperors, each one worse than the last. And, and, but it keeps Rome united for a significant period of time because Domni and Severus, they saw how they, they thought that a system whereby they could rise by merit really to being emperor and empress, people of color, you know, a person who was related in a sense as a Carthaginian to Hannibal, um, even though he was a Roman general, it was still kind of an affront to, to Romans. And, and it's no accident that he was the guy who declared that to be a Roman citizen now, you didn't have to be born of certain families. If you're paying taxes to Rome, you're a Roman citizen, which was a, also a scandalous change, but was a huge boon to the rest of the world, which suddenly had rights and, and resources that, that they had not had before. So it, it is very possible that this, this little mini kind of not so many Renaissance was also partially the result of the hymns of Orpheus. And these scholars argue that the hymns were part of the symposiums, that they would have drinking parties that maybe even lasted all night. And they, one great argument is about how the order of the hymns is such that when you're about halfway through, like as you get in toward that halfway point, we get more sensual subjects mm. more you know if you're the, the booze is hitting them and and they're feeling kind of flushed and and they're and now these hymns are talking about the, the beauties of life and the pleasures of it and but then it gets dark as it approaches the ending it gets somber mm. and it finally brings us into the hymn to death to close everything off and the argument is this is a perfect it's like a, a mashup or a, a music mix for for the symposium mm. and takes you emotionally along the right kind of of rise and fall for that experience so who knows it's an interesting argument i think and and there is the telltale sign of a renaissance at the heart of this very improbable situation yeah the what comes to mind with all of that is that i know that the symposiums which began in greece and then the romans adopted them that that was also one of the ways that early Christianity spread and early Christianity adopted many of the ritual aspects of the symposium. And, you know, we still see that in the mass and there's, you know, what is coming to mind is that at one point, a Roman emperor decides to use Christianity to unite the empire, and it almost seems like this predated that, but they were attempting to do something similar with uh, Orpheus in a way, but I also know the symposiums were dedicated to uh, various gods, but often Dionysus, mm-hmm. and there is that Orphic-Dionysian connection there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think there was a lot more, there was, you could be 
it's so fascinating to me because this is happening now as well a, a great deal and it's all happened throughout american history you you get this these kinds of of hybrids mm. of christianity and 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 especially goes well with the religion of dionysus because you've got the wine mystery in there right. you have this this rebellion against a prevailing militaristic autocracy and and you you have a, a more female friendly kind of a, of an approach, and so I, I do think that there was there were lap. I think somebody could go to a Christian symposium and then go to a symposium for Orpheus, especially in in the Rome of the Four Julias, mm-hmm. where where that this was encouraged. You know, temples were built, and it's terrible. It's, you know, it backfired in the most bizarre way. When it first happened, of course, Roman senators were terrified that, that, that there would be eventually a god king, that, that somebody would inherit the, the priesthood of Baal and be the emperor of Rome at the same time. And it happened. Hmm. There was an emperor by the name that we call him Elagabulus, which is like half elegant and half fabulous, which is pretty amazing, Elagabulus. And he was. He was this like 16-year-old priest of Baal who was related to the emperor and was chosen by the Julias to be the new emperor. And he was just all wrong for the gig. And mm. he everything he did insulted the Romans. He was very flamboyant. And for instance, he sent this incredibly to the Romans, just repulsive painting of himself where he's all done up in makeup and he's wearing just tons of kind of feminine looking priest outfit stuff and 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 it's life-sized and he he orders that it be hung in the senate to represent him until he can get there and instead the senators are all looking at it (laughs) and saying this see this is what we were afraid of Mm. and he gets there and the first thing he, he starts to do big moves like he orders this this holy this black stone that weighed several tons the stone of Baal this most sacred object in the temple of Baal will now be moved into the Roman pantheon and he has it moved there and married to all the female Roman goddesses in in ceremony I don't even know if he's if he's is he serious or is this like a prank because he loved pranking people and he did invent a, maybe he is the inventor of the whoopee cushion but he invented a whoopee cushion and used it and he had weird parties like a party where only one-eyed men were invited a party where he had only white food or only green food or a party where he had obese men on tiny couches and and one party supposedly where flowers were dumped on his guests to such profusion that to his great hilarity, several of them suffocated to death. Wow. So we don't know if this is just propaganda because he was hated. So of course, mm. I mean, they accused him of, of having orgies in the name of Baal and in the Roman pantheon and all that, but this is typical Roman propaganda. Mm. So we don't really know, but we do know that they finished him off pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm one of the other questions I have is to stick with the Christian theme and the connections. I know that you had mentioned in the book 
the connections between early depictions of Jesus as the shepherd, uh, as well as uh, Orpheus. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, but also in connection with that is when do you know when were the earliest artistic depictions of Orpheus? Right. The okay. So earliest artistic depictions, we have like these, these, these the things we're sure of mm-hmm. are, for example, Athenian black pottery, black and and there we see actually Orpheus strumming, playing for his fellow Thracians. This is going to be considerably after Pythagoras, however. So it could simply be part of that stream. Now, before then, we're not sure who we're looking at. If we, it, it, it used to be that if he had a liar, he's Orpheus. But we really don't know that. There were others like Musaeus who were depicted holding these. And in some instances, Musaeus is presented as being older than and being the teacher of Orpheus. So, so we don't really have a dependable visual on him at all. It's even worse than, than the, the verbal stuff, the uh, written down material. So I'm sorry, the first part of the question was... Oh, just the connection between the imagery of uh, yeah, the, shepherd. the shepherd. Yeah, yeah that is, that's interesting because one of the favorite depictions of Orpheus in ancient times, and you see it in Rome, and is Orpheus as surrounded by the animals who are entranced with music. There were so many mosaics of that. And it was a popular illustration because it was so charming. It was appropriate in a garden. And, and it was also a symbol, a kind of a, a, it's something that you could have an image you could have in your house that would be a symbol of how one can be harmonized to the divine. Hmm. So whether it's the community, so Orpheus represents the, the daemon of the community who's watching over it, the protective God, and, and then all the animals are the community members, or it's a family, or it's your own body and your soul, the, the beasts of your organs and, and your, your soul is making the harmony that makes them all entranced and work together. And that kind of, of imagery gets picked up as, as Jesus, the good shepherd. And what's interesting is that, that we don't see right away Jesus depicted with sheep, and that's it. So this is the depiction of we do see Jesus surrounded by various animals, and we do have images where scholars have to look at it and go, I don't know, I'm not sure who that is. Yeah. There may not be a musical in- instrument here, but this sure seems like it's Orpheus. And maybe the same artist did them both, you know, and, and was creating these hybrid visuals to go with people's beliefs at the time. Because that's one of the exciting things, at least to me, about the Orphic stuff seems to encourage people to, to take that Alexandrian kind of approach yeah. of syncreticism of, yeah, make up your own stuff and, and make it even something better and, mm-hmm. and, you know, respect the old traditions, but reinvent them for yourself and, and make something wonderful. Yeah. That that side of it is is continually shown in its history. Yeah. Well, and what about Alexandria? Because that would definitely be after the Pythagoreans. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of jumping over Plato here for a moment, but we can always go back to Plato. Yeah. But is there evidence of uh 
the Orphic traditions or the Orphic literature in Alexandria? Because that would yes. make a lot oh, of yeah. sense. Look, the most popular piece of Orphic writing for the the period of the Dark Ages, kind of the the when the church was dominant, was called the Testament of Orpheus. And that's the one where he studies with Moses. Okay. And it seems to have been created by uh, a, somebody Jewish in Alexandria who was obviously well-versed in Platonism. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's a hybrid of, of Platonic ideas and of Jewish ideas. And, and Moses is now claimed as the father of the whole Orphic tradition and of the religion of Dionysus. After all, Dionysus was shown with horns and with long hair and a beard, and so was Moses. Right, right. Yeah, and the Dionysian as well with the wine and the wine of the last supper <laughs> sorry yeah. that's just uh, uh, kind of coming up yeah. yeah i i love all the syncretism in there and in part of me you know i know that scholars always want to try to get to the origins of things often mm -hmm. but i also think that sometimes if you can't find the origins that's also kind of good in sure. some ways you know it's fascinating yeah. i mean it, it it's well let's let's talk for a moment about this, the, the, the blood and the body, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that here is Dionysus, who as Zagreus, this infant who Zeus instantly falls so in love with that he puts this infant on his throne. Hmm. And, and the jealous, vengeful, hateful Titans can't stand that Zeus is so happy and they, they just want to eat this, this kid. And they use these toys, um, the apples, the mirror, the tuft of cotton. Well, what are these things? I mean, you know, this is, they say, used to say that Neoplatonists, that the planets are the apples. Mm. And the mirror is the way that we fall into existence by, by our own reflection in matter. And, and they finally, they get him off the throne. They get him somewhere off in some shady place where Zeus isn't paying attention. And they slaughter him and and they eat him cook him and eat him so we are the children of what happens when zeus's lightning hits that mess and and then there's this ash left which is partly dionysus and therefore divine and the child of zeus and so we are the grandchildren or even in a sense dionysus ourselves and apollo was said to be the savior of dionysus apollo reaching out into the universe with his harmony to bring back all the tears of Dionysus that have fallen into individuality and have forgotten themselves. And so now this is a sublimation of it that we find in the Catholic church. In the original religion of Dionysus, we're actually eating animals. And in some cases they're being torn apart alive to be eaten raw. We're smearing the blood on ourselves and and so we are literally the, the blood and it's called the blood and the body of the God. And, and then Orpheus or Pythagoras comes along and they say, no, no, that's the, we don't want to do that anymore. We've got cities now. Things are different. And, and they come up with this idea that, well, actually it was, it was poor Zagreus who was torn apart and eaten. And, and so from this 
body and blood we were born and and then along comes the the church and says you know partake of the blood and body of of christ and and be be of the body of christ and it's a sublimation of the same religious impulse right right and the it was the idea that the body was like a tomb the and yes. there was a play on that greek the greek terms of sima soma right yes exactly yeah. yeah the body a tomb and yeah. the idea that that as plato pointed out that so famously that we are in a cavern relating to shadows the cavern is the body with its limits on on consciousness and then the the shadows are the shadows of the things that really are which we never really see and that takes us back to that discussion of well what what are we addressing when we address the gods we have a bunch of right. words but we can't we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that those words are the answer to what those things are they're they're a very meager way of designating these things not an explanation of them right yeah well they're symbols you know and yeah. or archetypes or something and it reminds me of the you know the statement about i think it comes from buddhism about you know not mistaking the finger pointing to the moon for the moon yeah. you know and that with the words we sometimes mistake the words for the thing exactly yeah, it turns into, a, it's a kind of like an idolatry that occurs because the, the mystery and the magic of the thing begins to disappear. So you, I often hear this in, I think, you know, it's, it's just me, but in, in Christian circles where it's like everybody knows exactly what Jesus is thinking and, mm -hmm. and what Jesus is. And, 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 there's, and some of this is very, it's, you, you read about, we actually, I wrote about in my AMR book about uh, a belief that that heaven is is a place like an amusement park mm. and you can eat as much ice cream as you want and and that that's it i mean it's so and they know that's what it is it isn't that there's that's a symbol or that that you know yeah jesus is a great mystery is a great you know a great miracle what does this really mean no i know exactly jesus is why i do what i do because jesus agrees with me about these things yeah that kind of, of thinking. And that's, of course, true in every religion and in all spiritual practices. That's that's a dangerous trap is, is falling into the word and right. and forgetting the mystery behind it and and yeah. then losing that that sense of connection to something. And yeah. to keep that connection alive, that that sense of mystery and awe in the face of creation. I always I, I'm I just think it's so grand that uh, all the way up to the time of like Robert Flood. Robert Flood thought that the sun was literally the light of God's soul. I mean, what, can you imagine walking around <laughs> in the world, feeling the sun on your back and it's God's soul, wow. right? I just thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we miss, you miss poetry and spirit when you make things literal, you know? And that's always been my beef with literalism in terms of uh, biblical text and whatnot is it just strips it of what's important i think well you know? william blake said that it was written for poets and only poets i was written by poets and only poets can understand it yeah yeah and you know speaking of plato to jump back with that idea of you know you mentioned you know the the allegory of the cave when you were describing plutarch's initiation that's what came to mind was yeah. plato's allegory of the cave mm -hmm. 
you know definitely yeah and there's so much i mean of course in the uh, neoplatonic tradition it's said that play, that orpheus is everywhere yeah. that, in, in plato that it's which is a way perhaps of saying that pythagoras is everywhere in plato yeah and and we definitely find out the funny thing about it is that plato joins those greeks who left us warnings about those who follow orpheus mm. and he also puts down orpheus as a coward and makes what might be the first musician joke in history when he says, but you know, he was a musician. <laughs> and, and so Plato accused Orpheus of making un citizens less, less devoted to the polis, to the city, and, and didn't think that what he was teaching was healthy. And yet his, his whole after death stuff, and I mean, I mean so much of the, the, let's call it the metaphysical side of Plato which everybody wanted to wish into the cornfield, but thankfully these days scholars realize you can't, mm. um, that that side of Plato is filled with Orphic ideas yeah. and, and is echoing Orpheus constantly. Mm. So you see that, for example, in the, the, the myth of Ur, mm. right? When we go into the, the afterlife and we see the souls choosing their next lives because they didn't wake up and most of them are so dumb that they they never look at the back of the shard they pick up so they find something like king and they go great and they never look at the back which is killed by your own son hmm. and only one person is carefully walking around looking at both the front and the back and it's the spirit of odysseus because he's had enough hmm. and so he's looking for a farmer long quiet life <laughs> yeah yeah well and it's i you know what i am also thinking about now is this connection between possible connection between the pythagoreans and the orphics and maybe you know they created the orphic hymns and plato's use of myth and it seems like, you know, maybe that is a bit of an argument that they were creating a myth to explain or highlight some philosophical ideas. Well, there's a, there's an argument in, and I think this is a brilliant idea in academia that, that the divine madness mm, yeah. that begins in, in just the, the practice of, of, the raging tearing the bull apart worship of Dionysus and its origins turns into the divine madness of, of tuning the soul to the, to union with the divine through the mysteries, which in Socrates turns into the divine mania of his method of seeking the truth. And then in Plato, turns into the divine mania of philosophy and then establishes there, at least in Bertrand Russell, you know, in his early days, he, he said that he thought Pythagoras invented the Orphic religion. Right. And he also said that the Pythagoras was at the heart of all of Platonism and that, that Plato was at the heart of all Western philosophy, especially anything with an esoteric flavor to it. And so I love that idea because that's what we're seeking. I mean, that, in a way, that's what Plato is teaching us. And one of the funny things about, about Plato's studies is 
that they really wanted to to strip him of that you know in the 19th century everybody was talking about plato the mystic Mm. and plato was was important to the spiritualists and the theosophists and the hermetic brotherhood of luxor and 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 then he's reinvented by these german scholars from the hegelian school who say all that 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 mystical stuff that's just mythologizing forget it what we're really into is the math the ethics, the, 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 you know, the sciences, that's where he's important. Mm. And what do you then say about the existence at the center of Plato's vision, the laws, where he's trying to really get to the heart of what he's laying down for society of, of the school of, of, oh, wow. It just went right out of my head. Well, what it's, I think it's called the night's yeah, the night school. It's in their book here. I'll look but, it up. Real but quick. what it is, the important thing is what it is, which is it's a small group of elder priests of the Orphic mm-hmm. tradition who meet only between when the very first blush of light hits the sky in the morning until the full circle of the sun rises above the horizon. And during that time, they make the decisions about what laws are kept, what laws are changed, and what laws are gotten rid of. And they they will write new laws when needed. Hmm. Well, they said he was senile, Plato, that he must have been senile when he wrote that. I mean, he put Orphic mystics at the center of the government of the hmm. laws. Yeah. But if that doesn't show us what the, what he really thought, what the influence of this, these ideas were on him, I and mean, he entrusted Orphic priests, priests of Apollo, in particular, with the governance of this this perfected society he was trying to imagine. Yeah, the night gathering is what that's you it. it. The night the gathering. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know. And for the record, when I teach philosophy, you know, because that's what I do, I almost always present Plato as a mystic. <laughs> that's great. I I don't think that you can do otherwise. But going back to the Pythagoreans and even some of the other, you know, kind of pre-Socratic philosophers. Yeah. I love the idea that there's this challenge to what philosophy originally was, that there is something initiatory about it Mm -hmm. and that there's something mystical. And I know that there's debate about this, and this is something I wanted to ask you about in regards to Orpheus, but there also seems to be almost something shamanistic about early philosophy yeah Yeah, that's well that's yeah that's i think there's value in in pointing that out like in saying gee you know look how this resembles it now in academia today that issue is is pretty much considered dead like Mm. that he was not it was not a shamanistic tradition it 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 has resemblances right to to shamanistic tradition is what, what is being said there right I don't know if that's certainty, and certainly the Orphic scholars are the first to admit that any kind of certainty about Orphic matters is probably misplaced. Yeah. So I, I think that they're they're aware of that, but yeah. there seems to be an abundant evidence that that these are two different kinds. So he wasn't a Thracian shaman who is remembered right. even in Thrace. You know, he's remembered as a great king mm. who who brought peace and reformed religion, and and but not as as that. Yeah. So. 
the the other thing is that he this is why we we kept emphasizing counterculture and writing about it because we have to consider the context which is the olympian religion mm. and homeric perspective that was really dominant in in society in those days in ancient greece and and here we have the idea of you know war was extremely important to these cities these these cities were constantly at war with each other and the only time that they really proved unity was when they were fighting somebody else an external enemy like the persians so so having you know warriors who were really into fighting was what they wanted and so you wanted them eating beef you wanted them not to blanch at the idea of of killing an animal and hmm. and raising up these young men who are saying you know well why would i want to you know how big a step is it in other words from if I kill that bull, I might be killing my mom from a past life to if I kill my enemy, I might be killing my mom from a past life. It, it's so counterculture. It's, it's this absolutely, you're preparing for death. Mm. You're, you're not going out there fighting for your city. You're like, that's nonsense. That's losing yourself in this world of illusion. Mm. You've got to wake up your soul. That's why you're here. Well, you know, all that anybody wanted in the Homeric world was to die in battle a hero. Mm. Now that's laughed at. What an idiot. Yeah. And, and then even more shocking is the superiority that it gave you, which is so characteristic of countercultures. So imagine you're, you're, you're walking along and, you know, the, the big strong guys who, who run everything and the, the soldiers and, now the traditionalists who believe in, in the Homeric way of life and who were undoubtedly a bully class, they, they are suddenly met by somebody who is effeminate probably, very well educated and who looks down on them. Mm. Well, how dare you look down on me? What are you looking at? I'm superior to you in every way. No, you're not. Because I will be free when I die and I'll never come back. Whereas no one knows how many lives a big dunce like you is going to have to live. <laughs> right. So it's a counterculture yeah. and, and rather a shocking one. And I think that's part of its charm throughout mm. history to artists who are usually counterculture in yeah. some way. Yeah. And I even love how there's this one story. Dozens of operas were inspired, of course, by Orpheus, especially by the backward glance. And along comes Gleck, and he's he's like, oh, I hate this ending. And he's like, you know what? Happy ending. He <laughs> saves her. Yeah. Well, this is like this giant shock. It mm. practically caused a riot. But people were so happy that it dominated opera for decades after that. All of a sudden it was all about happy endings after years of tragedy. That's the power of the way this Orphic myth just keeps reshaping the, the world of arts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking that because Orpheus was not a God, so it wasn't worshiped right. like the other Greek gods, but I also knew that often what would happen is you would have heroes kind of venerated as ancestors and i love the yeah. idea of orpheus as the countercultural ancestor he is uh, and he's yeah. well he's a demigod i mean yeah. he he okay, was supposed yeah. to have been the son of the muse okay and the grandson right. of memory yeah so he he's partly divine yeah. like us 
<clears throat> excuse me, right? Maybe a little more directly, but but we are all partly divine according to the, what he taught. Mm -hmm. And we all have Dionysus. And yeah. when we wake up to it, we're liberated from, from our suffering. Mm. Now, That's why he was the liberator. Yeah. Now there's, I want to move on to the influences, but so the okay. kind of the last question about kind of the history sure. is there is this idea within it of reincarnation and, yes. and I can definitely see as I was reading the book, again, connections to Plato with the idea of the importance of remembering and knowledge yeah. um, and, and living again, uh, the yeah. metempsychosis of the soul. And that immediately brings to question like India. I mean, I think it's mm -hmm. totally possible for ideas of reincarnation to appear in various places, mm -hmm. but is there any evidence of connections between the Orphic traditions and India? There are just tremendous similarities yeah. uh, for sure. Now, some opinions now blavatsky for example argued on the basis of scholars of that era that this was really must have been from india and the dionysus himself was hindu mm. and she, the argument was that orpheus came from a greek word that meant dark dark skinned mm. or dark toned and the feeling was that this was just an invasion and dionysus is described as as coming into the country and with this outlandish group of satyrs and maenads and and leopards and such and and so it's like a missionary coming from outside it doesn't seem to arise from the area uh, itself and then there was joseph campbell's opinion about it which was that he thought that it wasn't that it was direct influence but that they were they were part of a literature that that grew up during a time when changes in weather and and crop failures and such created great misery mm. and there was a great literature of despair that arose everywhere it was it was in the middle east it was in all over the world i think of that anywhere writing was happening we were getting this literature of lament mm. and so he thinks that that in its essence this is a the Orphic hymns are a literature of lament because the hymns themselves are we're, we're trying to regain the lost grace we're not celebrating being with it we're we're asking we're telling the gods that we honor them in order to be lifted to their vision of the perfection of the world because we're living in its imperfection and and through our ignorance we're we're keeping that going and for ourselves and others and so we're we're turning to we're again you know this dionysus the liberator right mm -hmm. so you know liberate our divine part and wine was seen as being a key element in that especially there are some scholars who think that the wine was drugged with an entheogen of one kind or another and and it, it but even wine itself used at full strength because the Greeks tended to use wine and water down. Right. It gives you that heady flush and that, that it, it can easily be turned into a mystical experience. Hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to move on a little bit to influences, but also, I guess, reinterpretations, because one of the things that I really liked was you have a chapter about how Eurydice, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, 
has been reinterpreted to some extent in the sense that sometimes she's not always happy that Orpheus comes to rescue her from the underworld. Uh, yeah, she almost, fun. yeah, she almost takes on a, a, a feminist kind of look to her, I guess. It's, it's kind of fun. She, you know, she starts out as this, almost like this voiceless, nameless, creature now there are some early versions where she's the she saves him mm. and it kind of goes with her name which means wide justice mm. it's probably eurydice or okay, eurydice yeah. right I, I i usually pronounce it eurydice just right. a lot of people do but i don't know most of these pronunciations are our guesses right we don't really know what ancient greek sounded like mm. and so the she she could have been Persephone under that name, right? Wide wide justice, the just the the judge of the dead. And in the actual what we have of the literature, she has no name, she has no voice. She's we don't know what she looked like, we don't know where she was from. She's she's really just an absence, which is somewhat appropriate. Mm. As she begins to take on form, the first time is really with Virgil, the great Roman poet during the Augustan age, <clears throat> who says um, he has his Eurydice. When Orpheus turns around, she scolds him. Hmm. She's like a, a Roman wife, you know, and she's, she's like, you idiot, you know, look what you did. We could have had a good life and now you've ruined it. And, and then we get into a place where she's being presented as someone who is very grateful that she gets to play her small role by dying and therefore liberates Orpheus to bring all of this goodness to the world. And it takes until really, I didn't find anything earlier than HD, the, the mystical poet uh, around the beginning of the 20th century who was going through a divorce with her very narcissistic metaphysician husband. And she wrote a poem about Orpheus and Eurydice about that relationship in which she describes Orpheus as a narcissist hmm. and accuses him of being in love with being in love with Eurydice, not really loving Eurydice. Hmm. He's glorying in, in all, you know, wow, the gods are paying attention to me. Hmm. And so this turns into as the really it's when the sixties come around that it kind of rips loose and we start to get all kinds of really wonderful new interpretations of Eurydice. Carol Ann Duffy does, I think my favorite, which is, this is, this is a really funny Eurydice who is really happy to be in the underworld and away from him. <laughs> And she says, you know, oh, and all that stuff about how the animals would come around. That was just PR. And I know because I'm the one who wrote it. <laughs> and then she and then she said, and then there's a knock on the door to Hades. Who but the big O himself? And she's like, big is life with a poem to pitch and me is the prize. And and she just, you know, she can't stand it. And he's, there he is, you know, he's going to do such a great song that he's going to win her back and the whole, all the gods will know. And he's very concerned that, you know, he's coming across the right way. And so as she's walking behind him, because Hades orders her to follow, she's thinking, what can I do? My God, I've got to get him to turn around. 
I can't stand it. It's just too claustrophobic to go back to that life. And she gets an idea. She says, he won't be able to stand it if I compliment him. He'll have to turn around and look. So <laughs> she says, oh, Orpheus. I think that was the best song I've ever heard you sing. And he turns around. You think so? <laughs> Bam. She's gone with a smile on her face. And then another version by a different poet is that she feels that she she doesn't want to to have to be his like symbol of of you know like she doesn't even want to be remembered and she and she doesn't remember him and the mm -hmm. famous the first person to do that was Rilke who has her look at Orpheus Hermes is leading her and she looks at Orpheus and she doesn't recognize his face and that's a wonderful reversal of it yeah. and she just fades back into the underworld and there's another poem that says that she she didn't want to put a body on again mm. gross you know just yeah. the idea of it she was free from all that so it's it's fascinating how she's been reinvented in this way one had orpheus in her black cadillac being driven around new york <laughs> in the middle of the night and he was dead right his corpse yeah. but totally gave her this this phenomenal voice and and this new way of seeing orpheus in a way mm. yeah. of of recognizing within him the way that that artists will cannibalize their muses. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the there's a it's not explicit. And maybe I'm reading something into this. And I want to be careful because I don't want to give spoilers. But I and I don't know if you've seen it or not. But when David Lynch did the Twin Peaks the Return the third, the final season. And he filmed it as an 18 hour movie. And the very last hour seems to be directly related to Orpheus and Eurydice. Wow. Really? Oh, I've got to check yeah. that out. Yeah. yeah I don't want to give away. Yeah. I don't want to give away too much. Okay. You gotta, I'll you gotta, definitely check it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. You got, you, you got to get to the 18th hour okay. and uh, reinvents everything. And I'll just say it kind of, speaks to what you were just saying in a sense about the Orpheus as kind of the hero or the knight in shining armor. And that sometimes that vision, that quest gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can see from the point of view of, of the Olympian establishment of, of the Greeks. Wow. Was he getting in the way? Yeah. And yeah. why, and, and also he was seen as, you know, they thought what an act of hubris yeah. to go down there, to, to force the gods to tell you to go down there because you're giving into your grief so much. That is not, you know, the, the Homeric ideal. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating the way, and I think that any kind of mythology and any symbol, that's what makes it so potent is that it can be reinterpreted throughout generations i mean we've yeah. had a couple thousand years now uh, yeah of this story and it's still you know like i said you know with david lynch you mentioned i've not seen it yet one of my best friends just raves about the musical hadestown hadestown yeah which i now want to see because you wrote about it yeah uh, check it out connect it yeah so i know that we've been going on here for a little bit but let me ask you of all the hymns do you have a favorite? 
I have favorite moments in hymns. Okay. But I, I they're all just so even the simple ones. I mean, mm. it's it's them together. And I think yeah. there are some that stand alone, okay. especially the way we approached it, because we yeah. we've taken a very literary. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, we weren't we didn't really want to use the word translations. And the publisher yeah. was like, well, there's no other way to get across what these things are. Yeah, and, that was my which next is, question for you, actually. <laughs> yeah, which is somewhat true. Now yeah. we did go, I studied ancient Greek. I have my little Scott with me and I was, you know, have my grammar with me. And I was, we, I was taking apart those hymns word by word yeah. while Tamara was researching the cults and, and getting to go into books like, like the incredible book by Cook on Zeus, which is like mm. six giant oh, yeah. volumes and, and just filled with every little detail about Zeus you could ever imagine. Wonderful stuff for poetry and, and for these hymns. And so we, we kind of, we wanted to capture the meaning of each one. We didn't want to change it to where it was unrecognizable. Right. But we wanted to give it the color of cult so that, so that we would understand the correspondences associated with it and be able to see the beauty that is associated with this particular divinity or this particular aspect of life. We wanted the language to have a lyrical and poetic quality. And we wanted to include poetic where we could vignettes that were appropriate. So it's a literary approach to it. And right. we often, you know, laugh about being blasphemers. We, we committed the crime <laughs> of onomacritus, you know, and, and, and we certainly have, and even to the point of, so for example, in one of the charms is that lovely short charm that is guaranteeing eternal memory for Cecilia. Hmm. And that, that thing came out 500 years after the other golden leaves, more or less. Yeah. And it was an early included and very questionable golden leaf, but we just thought it was so lovely it had been in the tradition it was included in kern's initial collection of orphic fragments and even though it probably shouldn't be we thought we would include it as a literary choice yeah. and we even made a hymn to numbers because we know there was lost hymn to numbers so we, okay. we made one up to make up for it being lost really something that i mean i guess i should explain that part of the reason that we've taken these liberties besides trying to make the experience more immediate for for the reader and for ourselves was because we can, because the scholars can't, the people who, who know more than we do and who helped us with this book, they, they can't just make up the hymns and stuff, you know, and unless it's their own, but they can't right. take something like this and morph it and say, yeah, here it is, our version of it. But, but I can, Tamara can, you know, we, right. we're not people who are claiming any kind of scholarly imprimatur and we'd, we just, we'd like that we have the freedom to be artistic about it and to recreate yeah. it. Yeah. So I hope that we, we captured, you know, the purpose was to make them function both as, as just good reading mm -hmm. and also as good ritual Yeah. and including a musical format. And we did give them to people. We gave them to people on the witch and pagan side, and we gave them to people on the theurgy and neoplatonic side. And, and asked, you know, we got people came back and said, I love them. You know, they're really working good. And yeah. so we were looking for that. We wanted to make sure that, that they carried the original intent, which is 
to 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 bring you closer to the god yeah when i find that you know the like i said at the very beginning i have used some of the orphic hymns in some of my own rituals and i've got the translation i i'm going to slaughter the name by athanasakis yeah athanasakis he's great yeah. That's the, yeah. that is the scholarly. And he helped us also with, with okay. our book. Uh, he, yeah. he let us see an early version of his before it was published. And okay. he's always been really, really kind. And yeah, his is the one I tell, I, what I usually tell people, I mean, you want to get Athanasicus if you want to see what's really there. Yeah. He simplified it. He's yeah. taken out some of the repetition. It, they're, they're kind of boring in, yeah. in their real form, because as I said, all these things are assumed you know right. the priest knows all the details it's probably assembled around the priest as the ritual is being performed but but athanasicus has lots of good footnotes that will let you know what things are and 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 i also encourage people to buy all the translations there's yeah. only i think altogether five of them maybe mm. in english mm. most of them are fairly recent yeah. and they all have value yeah. and and when you do that you get, you kind of can see through the words mm -hmm. at, at what's being approached there. Yeah. We're the only one that I know of that took the liberty that we did. So yeah. we're almost a, more of a recreational <laughs> approach to it. And I like the idea of play. I mean, right. yeah. I think it's important to, to keep it in a light place yeah. when you're exploring it. And, yeah. and that way, it seems like things happen. It's the same thing in, in spirit spiritualism hmm. it seems that when people are kidding around they tend to be much more psychic hmm. than when they're trying to make a living at it for most people yeah yeah well what i was going to say is that with the translation that i've been using sometimes it's rather unwieldy yeah you know and what i really liked about what you and tamara did is that they are so much more user-friendly and yeah. i've not tried them in ritual yet but i will um, oh, good. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to hear yeah. that. Yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. the most the most honor you can get. And, you know, it's funny. Somebody asked me recently, you know, what, so when did you start these? Like, when did yeah. you know you were going to do these? Mm. And I said, I said, you know, when I was like seven or eight years old, <laughs> I saw a rerun of the Star Trek with Apollo in it. Mm. And the whole idea that the Greek gods had brought all of these wonderful things to humanity and now they were just being forgotten because we'd outgrown them really bothered me. And I felt a tremendous sense of, of devotion to Apollo. And when he called out the names of the other gods at the end, when he fades away, I was like, no, 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 no. Those gods <laughs> live. They've got yeah. to. Yeah. And, and then I started to do this like a scroll of monsters. It was my secret project where I, all my favorite monsters, I would make drawings of them and like tape them together into this giant scroll. And I often think that's when the hymns of Orpheus started. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, my version of them. Yeah. Somehow yeah. I knew I was going to be doing something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've got a history with them as well, because like you said, you the last thing you worked on with the Manly Palmer Hall was that, translation of the what was it taylor thomas thomas taylor yeah. i'm sorry yeah yeah thomas taylor yeah and you know i also want to say that you even though you say that you're not academic i know that you're not you know teaching at a university or anything but what i really appreciate about your work and this was with your first book the american metaphysical religion and this one especially with your bibliography is 
you do have academic cred (laughs) Uh, and it's it's the bibliography in here is a treasure and and i think i said the (laughs) same thing about the american metaphysical religion as well because it came across as incredibly well researched and trustworthy thank you that's what i was trying to do and i and i did have the help of of a lot of academics on both books yeah that, what I like about the Orpheus bibliography is it's partially annotated. Yeah. So yeah. we get to we get to include more interesting information and and we get to learn who some of these people were right. and what the different ideas about the subject have been. So it's kind of a fun if you're into that, if you're like books, that's that's a yeah. fun read, I hope. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I haven't gone through, I have just a few pages into the bibliography, but I'm definitely going to be reading the whole thing because it it is an incredible resource. And I had some of the books myself. So I just started pulling them out, you know, so I'm kind of surrounded by them here. Oh, cool. um, In in preparation for the conversation. So let me ask you, um, you, this has been a big year for you because you had the American metaphysical religion come out. And now this one, are you working on something new or are you taking a break? What do you have coming up? I have a book about Rosicrucian origins and context that will be okay. coming out from inner traditions next year sometime, okay. but I don't know when. Okay. And I'm finishing a book about Stuart Edward White and his wife, Betty. Okay. Yeah. About their unobstructed universe teachings and about their incredible lives, like incredible biographies. And their teachings and their biographies are so unique. And one of the things that's so great about them is is the teachings actually closely resemble Platonism and they closely resemble the the secret of the golden flower in the Chinese Taoist alchemical tradition. So, but they're, they're presented in such an easy way. And I just have found so many wonderful ideas that seem to illuminate occult areas in those unobstructed teachings books. And I just love how it's presented in this American vernacular. And so I'm, I try to present their teachings as much as I could uh, using a lot of quotations in their own words and explaining things that were a little complicated because the English is kind of early 20th century more than our style. And and so that one, I don't know what will happen with it. It's almost done. Okay. Yeah. So, and then uh, there's a couple other things that are sort of percolating. All right. Wonderful. Yeah. I remember you had a chapter on them in American. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to really dwell on it because they, there's just, they're wild. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I look forward to both of those and hopefully you'll come back on and we can talk about the Rosicrucians, if not beforehand. And my understanding is one of the best places for people to go online for you is on Instagram. Yeah. If you want to reach me or follow kind of what events are going on and such, that's probably the best place okay. at the Ronnie Pontiac because there already was a Ronnie Pontiac. So now I'm okay. the Ronnie Pontiac. All right. Well, and, of course you are. <laughs> and, and then you can find, I mean, I always tell people to just use search engines because there's movies, there's music, there's, right. there's uh, like tons of, of interviews and stuff, especially on the AMR book. Right. Uh, that book came out in February and I think I've done over 60 interviews altogether. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I think there's like 30 or something on YouTube. And um, so there's lots of material for people to check out and depending on your interests and yeah. yeah. So I'm on Facebook too, and eventually I'll be around, but I, I'm not really, I don't have a lot of time 
for social media between yeah. writing and and taking care of interviews for the book. And then also yeah. I try to help other writers and yeah. I try to once in a while people approach me because they they want to deal with some issue that they think I have can shed some light on and all that stuff keeps me busy. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like you're in your own kind of renaissance now, because I know you've published articles before, but these are, you're now producing these books and I'm I want grateful to. for them. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I really want to like, like I'm trying to catch up to myself. It's funny. Like I have yeah. music. Tamara and I actually just found these old demos that mm -hmm. we did. We'd forgotten all about the pre-Riot Girl right after we left PRS where I was playing all the instruments except bass and she was playing bass and it was really good. Mm. And so we want to figure out what we want to do with that music. We want to yeah. share it in some way yeah. and then want to make more music. Cause I realized that I never really did my side of this. Like, like lucid nation was Tamara's right. project and I love it. And I always, you know, I love backing her and, and all that. I got songs like any good guitar player gets a song to sing <laughs> here and there. But I never like did a, my record, you know, and uh, one day yeah. she said to me, don't you don't you ever want to like do your own record, you know, mm. and it made me realize, wow, I, you know, wow, I didn't realize I, I left no statement musically in a sense. So yeah. that's something I'd like to to blossom into also. And we'll see. Yeah. I'm trying to try. I'm imitating Manly Hall, who was able to work on like 10 projects at once wow. and trying to build up the focus and stamina that he had to be able to do that kind of thing. So yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a challenge, right? Yeah, the focus and time—that's the one always gets me. Book time. publishing is time-consuming, man. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize, you know, I'd have to like do, you know, ten, ten edits, ten reads, yeah. you know, whatever. Like each stage of the thing: the submission edit, the the first draft, and then the, the, all the corrections. Then you fix mm -hmm. those, and then yeah. the final, and then the final, final, and you know, yeah. like it takes a lot of time. It and does. we work together, so her yeah. book you know, I'm, you know, we're reading it too. And we're, we're, we're editing together. And also it, it's like, yeah, it's a lot of stuff that's publishing's yeah. a trip. It's so backwards in a way, but yeah. in another way, it's what it takes. And even with all that, and I had great editors, not just from inner traditions, but academics and mm -hmm. friends who, 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 I mean, still mistakes. Yeah. It's yeah. like unavoidable. And I was lucky that one of the great academics of our time, I complained to him about it once and he said, <laughs> he said, Hey, even my, my Oxford and Cambridge books always have typos. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I think that's the whole purpose of a dissertation is just to get you through the publication process. Right. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. so yeah. So honorary PhD there for you, Ronnie. Oh, thank you. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's deserved. Uh, oh, so thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. This has been an absolute delight speaking with you. Um, oh, thank as you. always, I feel like I could speak to you for hours and hours, uh, but day's getting on and dinner's well, do, up. do stay in touch and do let me know if you, you know, use them and, and yeah. what may transpire. Oh, we're, we're oh. always fascinated by that. And Tamara yeah. sends her love. Oh yes. Thank and, you. Please, uh, uh, she's making me, regards. uh, making me do this because I, yeah. I, I was not, nobody wanted to talk to me in lucid nation. Oh. Everybody wanted to talk to Tamara and she's like, you know what? Guess what? <laughs> now it's my turn to relax. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, 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 you're, you're very knowledgeable and entertaining and a great speaker. So, Oh, um, thank you so much. Yeah, so I, I do appreciate absolutely everything. So okay. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.
And that's a wrap on episode 107 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio, then please consider signing up for my Patreon. Some of the perks for patrons include early access to videos, shoutouts to members, a members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discord server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast and spiritual and philosophical classics and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. I mean, remember, I am a professor of philosophy and religious studies, so consider the book club an ongoing classroom where you can go as deep as you want with me and with other rebel spirits. You can find the link for my Patreon in the show notes or video descriptions. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I still have a lot of big plans for the podcast and the YouTube channel. Right now, this is all a labor of love. So your support will not only help me continue what I do here, but will also help me grow the channel and, and the podcast. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, coworkers, you know the drill, <laughs> and on social media. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit. <laughs>